five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Hey space enthusiasts, space traffic management and related space debris continue to be hot topics as we keep on hearing about satellites like SpaceX's Starlink having to execute large numbers of collision avoidance maneuvers. Portugal-based Neurospace is focused on this and has raised a significant amount of money already to build their AI-based platform. COO Chiara Manfredi is our guest this week. Enjoy! My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts. Welcome back to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. It's another episode on space situational awareness, and it's with the Portuguese startup Neurospace. And very happy to have their CEO, Chiara Manfletti, here today. Welcome, Chiara. Thanks. Happy to be with you. Cool. So why don't we start as always, and may I ask you to give us the elevator pitch on Neurospace, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, so Neurospace is a startup indeed. Uh, we exist since about two and a half years, and what we do is space traffic management. We've raised about uh, $28 million already in uh, public and private funds. And what we have is a software as a service solution for addressing space traffic management. So basically what we do is we ingest uh, conjunction data messages and other sources of data. We issue warnings for operators. And if there is a potential conjunction, which is of high risk, then we automatically generate a maneuvering advice for operators. So what we, what we do is we basically bring AI uh, and data fusion and automation to the problem of space traffic management to ensure that operations remains a sustainable and, and profitable business. Okay, cool. And so let's take, take a step back. So I, in the intro, I use space situational awareness, and, and maybe that wasn't entirely correct, use space traffic management. But just because this is meant to be sort of a non-technical podcast, yep. do you mind sort of like parsing this or like telling this apart, um, how you view this yep. for our listeners, sort of like what are the differences, if any, between SSA, then there's also space domain awareness, which is sometimes used, yes, and then you mentioned so many uh, space, <laughs> many, <laughs> many abbreviations, many acronyms. Yes, yes. And that's that's the worst part of it. The, so many acronyms. Um, so you'll hear people talk about actually space safety. Then you'll hear them talk about space domain awareness, space situational 
awareness space surveillance and tracking, which is SST and space traffic management. They all pertain uh, to basically the field of wanting to maintain uh, space sustainable. Um, uh, the, the easiest difference that I make is space situational awareness is about being aware. You're not really doing anything. Uh, space situation, uh, space surveillance and tracking, you're actually surveying and you're tracking something. So you're actually using sensors to track objects in space. And that's where you use optical sensors on ground uh, or radars or upcoming also sensors in, in orbit. And then space traffic management. Uh, some people call it also space traffic coordination. There's so many variations, so many colors <laughs> of the whole thing um, is the idea that uh, if there's objects in orbit, the traffic, so to say, that is there needs to be managed. Um, the idea here is that you want to avoid collision. Um, and space domain awareness is just an even broader topic where it, you know, it, it can include many other things. Space situational awareness generally considers debris as well as space weather. You could also bring near-Earth objects or NEOs in there. So the more, the wider you uh, you you go with the field, the more you encompass than the broader it gets. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And I, and I think sometimes I've heard that space domain awareness, to take the last one, that the, the, the military community likes to use it because like you're saying, it doesn't have to be space debris or inactive satellites. It could be like an active enemy adversary satellites and things like that. But so correct me if I'm wrong, but one kind of necessarily builds on the other, right? I mean, you cannot do space yeah. traffic management if you're not aware of what's going on, obviously, right? So that's sort of the... Yes, yes, absolutely, right? So uh, as we, uh, you know, as the company also grows, uh, we also refine the way we talk about also, for example, the services that we offer. And we talk about, obviously, our space traffic management offering, uh, but we also have a space situation awareness offering or data as a service offering, where, of course, we have data that we can present to customers, and this includes space weather. But yes, they all they all connect with one another, and you absolutely need that data and that information from which you need to gather the insight. Of course, the key is not just having data. Uh, the key is being able to understand that data. So the whole it's a whole process. It's a whole chain. And so we're going to get to sort of specifically what you guys are doing at Neurospace, but mm. sort of just staying on the, you know, the, the, the broader market, so to say, or the broader mm. topic and issue uh, for a few minutes. I mean, in your view, now that you're spending sort of most of your time on this, how far along are we in, in, in terms of understanding, you know, what's going on in, in the orbits? And I'm asking this, I could use like a, a very current a a anecdote. I think um, a few days before we're recording this, um, suddenly a not small piece of a rocket washed up on an Australian mm. beach. Yeah, I and nobody, <laughs> it's like nobody, and this isn't the first time this has happened, right? No, it was like, nobody no. was like, oh, well, where did this come from? What kind of rocket is this? Yeah. And it seems like there's you know, relatively big pieces of junk falling from the sky and we don't actually yeah. seem to be aware. So this is for me, as sort of a, I'm not a lay person, but call it a relative lay person. It seems to suggest that there's still like pretty big gaps in the awareness. How, how yeah, do you see that? Absolutely, no, absolutely right. Uh, sometimes uh, when I'm sort of taking the whole subject a bit more jokingly, I do actually say ignorance is bliss because uh, indeed we, we, we're we not fully aware of what's up there uh, and there's big objects. I think those we can track and we're, we, sh we should have a clear view of, of, of what they are uh, and, and where they are. Uh, but there's many small objects that we're still very much not aware of. Uh, and these small objects uh, have are dangerous in, 
in and of themselves, uh, not because they're just, you know, the, the highest relative velocities that you can get here in space are like 15 kilometers a second, right? So this is pretty fast. So even something really tiny, if it hits something critical, it just can knock out a satellite. But if you're also a smaller satellite, and we have seen trends towards smaller satellites, and obviously the probability of something hitting a vital Orenkin in a smaller satellite is also larger. Um, so yeah, uh, we're, we're not far yet. Uh, I can tell you again with space uh, traffic management, in theory, you can certainly rely, you could rely on other companies that are sort of generating that data and you could very easily just say, okay, I, I'm not going to generate any data of my own. I will buy data from others uh, or I will partner with these other entities. Uh, but the value chain of data isn't established yet, just like space traffic management isn't fully established. So there's still a lot to do that needs to be done on, you know, throughout the entire spectrum and get the market up and running as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because the way I understood your business model is that you guys are ingesting mm, other yes. people's data and processing yes. it in, in, in value-added yes. ways. Yes. So that seems to suggest that you are, because there's obviously some companies which take different approaches, um, some mm. companies which just produce data and some companies which are, let's call it, vertically integrated. And so the fact that you guys have chosen the approach of being, let's call it like a downstream player in, in that sense, yeah. right? It seems to suggest that you are well more or less happy with the data you can obtain from other sources. But that then it sounds like you're not 100% happy that there's some gaps still. No, I can't say that we are happy. Uh, we are making the best out of the data that is available. Uh, but we, uh, from our side, we've recognized that there isn't a single source of data that can give you complete clarity, right? If you look at the types of sensors, you have optical, you have radar, uh, you have laser tracking, and then people are putting piezoelectric sensors in orbit to look at the micro debris environment and micrometeoroid environment. There's people that are putting optical sensors in space. There's event cameras that are coming up, star trackers, all these different types of sensors and the data that they can produce, they're all complementary. And no one, uh, and I mean, obviously a company that's invested in sensors will tell you that their sensors are great, but no one can really tell you that a single set of data or a single sensor can provide you the best insight. It's only when you put these together that you can actually get uh, the best possible insight into the entire situation uh, awareness spectrum. And that's why we've decided that data fusion is key. Having said this, uh, I, I, would, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that we are investing a little bit of our in, in own infrastructure just because the data market isn't established yet. But um, I also see that there's a responsibility in industry to actually stimulate uh, the relationships between the different companies and the different parts of the entire value chain, right? So um, if if now in your space goes off and sets up its own complete set of infrastructure, um, then I don't necessarily need to buy as much data. So I, I think that there's also a need to, um, you know, see specialized players in the different parts of the entire value chain and, and um, so we're doing a bit of both um, and so on the on, on the data side just to stay on that for a minute it kind of brings up another at least another couple of questions for me one is is all of the data that's being produced actually available to somebody mm -hmm. like you and i'm asking this because like for example in earth observation we know that some companies are very you know rigid around basically wanting to own the data and like use yeah. it themselves and not give anybody and i don't know how that mm -hmm. is in ssa so that's oh it's the same. okay it's, it's definitely the same and and part of this is uh you know companies trying to establish themselves as global players that's part of it uh, i think in space traffic management or in ssa and sda and in, in, in let's say the space safety domain in general uh, as the market isn't fully established i think companies are also trying to understand you know how can they really establish themselves as a global leader who's going to be doing what uh, how will the 
market shape up. And so, if you will, there's an additional uncertainty in terms of what the market really is for which part of the entire. Is it, as you were saying before, is it wise to verticalize? Is it better to go transversal? And so, I think that some of the companies are more uh, careful when they partner or sell their data or don't sell their data because they put simply they they don't know how to distinguish friend from foe because they don't know necessarily where they want to go be going themselves. And I think that's what we're uh, also seeing, which, yeah, okay. as I said, makes it uh, slightly different to just the uh, EO market that you were mentioning. So it's, it's similar, but there's also this added thing of the market not being there yet completely. Mm-hmm. And Thinking about the data that is available, and let's just assume it is sort of freely available about these issues. You mentioned there's different sensor types like, you know, optical and radar. And I think at the moment, still most of it is on the ground, but now some companies Mm -hmm. are talking about taking sensors into orbit. But is there any sort of like, you know, obvious gaps of something that you like, oh, I really wish this existed and um, I could get my hands on that data? Um, Well, we've, as I was saying before, we'd like to get data uh, from from all types of uh, sensors, really, because they're they're complementary. no, I mean, at this stage, as I said, we're, we're we're partnering with different companies that are looking in star trackers and optical sensors in orbit or optical. Th- I just wish they were all a lot further down in their developments <laughs> at this stage. So I can only uh, tell them to, 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 to move faster. <laughs> yeah. 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 Understood. Okay. So let's assume I'm a um, potential customers, customer of yours now. Actually, no, let's take a step back. Well, who, who are your customers? Is it mostly constellation mm-hmm. operators or is it also other people? Like I could also potentially imagine, um, I, I guess, governments for the raw data mm-hmm. or... So um, our, I don't know our insurance, insurance companies stand on this uh, these, uh, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely right. Uh, satellite operators are our primary or target group number one uh, for sure as customers. Uh, but there's a couple of other groups, if you will. Uh, you've certainly named them. You know, regulator, policymakers can can certainly be one of them. Uh, insurance companies, I see as a group. Uh, we we could talk about that in a second. Um, um, yeah, so, but we've also had some interactions with, let's say, uh, for example, new space propulsion companies that are planning to, you know, develop new propulsion systems and they want to see that their propulsion systems are space traffic management or collision avoidance maneuvering capable. And so they come and they want to sort of get requirements for us or potentially partner up. Um, and it's, it's actually been quite interesting to see how over the past year and a half, um, this whole space traffic management um, has moved from something that was, you know, very much not really, uh, it was spoken about, uh, about, but it's kind of traveled through entire, through, throughout the entire value chain from sort of the operators moving upstream to the satellite manufacturers. It's quite interesting. So at the end of the day, though, of course, the, the customers have to be you know, aware of the product and then willing to yeah. to pay for it. Where are yes. we in terms of like market adoption right now? I, like, you know, if your, your average constellation operators, and I appreciate there's probably going to be, there's probably a very large bandwidth sort of like how yeah. conscious are they of this issue and how much are they coming to people like you and how much do you have mm-hmm. to proactively go out there and say, look, this is really important. You're going to have an issue. Like <laughs> you want to have collision warnings. Well, the, I guess the answer to this question is twofold, right? On the one hand, of course, as we in your space have become more, uh, let's say, uh, known as a brand, uh, people have started coming to us rather than us having to just chase everyone, of course. Uh, so it's a bit of both at the moment, right? You go out and you hunt for customers, but the customers equally come and, and hunt for you and look for you. Um, in terms of awareness, it's actually quite interesting that uh, there's different levels of awareness or willingness to talk about this entire issue of collision avoidance, uh, depending on 
the type of player. So is it a new space company? Is it an established player uh, looking to put yet now new infrastructure in, in orbit? They were a geo before and now they're in Leo. If you're talking to the technical people, if you're talking to the business people within the companies. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see that there's uh, very many differences. But I, but I can tell you that I was at the EU conference for space and defense last week. Uh, was it last week in Brussels? Um, and uh, it was supposed to be about space and defense and more general. But I had the feeling that most of the topic was space sustainability, SSA and STM, which I, I found quite fascinating because it really feels like the awareness has really accelerated quite fast. Now I was going to ask you sort of if there's any sort of feeling you can give us. Um, let's say I'm a, you know, I'm an EO constellation operators, and mm. I have some satellites in a um, low Earth orbit, like like a polar orbit. Uh, maybe maybe I have like something I don't know, like half a dozen satellites. They're like you know, it's typical size, something like six U or so forth. Like yeah. how, how were like. I don't know how to quantify this, but sort of like how 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 bad, how much sleep should I lose yeah, yeah. over it? How about the situation? Like, am Means. I going to be facing like you know like one conjunction warning like a day, one a week, one a month, like that kind of thing? Yes, we had made a simulation uh, for a constellation of 250 satellites at a an orbital altitude of 700 kilometers, um, and we had come up with an estimate of 4,000 uh, conjunctions per week. Uh, uh, which had a missed distance of under uh, five kilometers, which is the current sort of um, threshold, which is used in industry today as a, as a standard, uh, meaning that you would have 4,000 conjunctions per week. You can divide that by seven days, and that, that is your number of conjunctions that you would have to look into as a satellite operator. And that's terrifying, really. Um, that's a huge amount of, of conjunctions um, that you'd have to look into uh, to understand you know, whether they're high risk or low risk, if you want to maneuver, if you don't want to maneuver. And that's the biggest problem is, of course, if you're in Leo, this is a 24-7 job, uh, meaning that you have to have dedicated people looking into this. And that's, if you will, again, where Neurospace comes in, because with an automated solution, then you basically have a virtual team member that's kind of processing all of the data and information and is only waking you up uh, when you really have to be involved into making a decision. So... Okay, just to play devil's advocate here for a minute, or maybe to clarify some of these numbers. Mm. And you mentioned here sort of commonly accepted uh, five kilometers, like mm. coming within five kilometers. And I assume that's sort of driven by the... It's because of the uncertainties, for sure. Yep. And, and plus plus some sort of like, what do you accept as a risk? And I don't know what, like, is there like a number? Is like people accept a 1% risk or it has to be 0.01%? Because what I also want to get at is like, that it, it seems like... Those are a lot of, you know, you're right, the number is terrifying. Those are a lot of conjunction warnings. On the other hand, I don't have the exact numbers, but at least today, there are still a lot of smaller satellites up there, which for historical reasons, mm -hmm. people didn't put propulsion on. So no, no, for sure. I mean, even, yeah, even, yeah. even if they, even if they had a conjunction warnings, there's nothing you could do. I mean, at least if it's two objects, right. And so that would, that would kind of then seem to me, well, why, why aren't we seeing collisions all of the time? But yeah, that isn't well, happening, is, right? So space is still big, uh, which is good yeah. uh, for sure. And uh, it's also true that uh, there's a distribution of objects, and there's pop, uh, sort of there's more densely populated uh, regions than others, right? And then if you go lower, then obviously there's decay mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. But you brought up, yeah. I think, another important point, which uh, was obviously, and it it brings us back to the question that you asked at the beginning: Is there a sufficient amount of data? One of the 
biggest problems that we have today is, of course, the uncertainties linked to where the objects are. Uh, you make a measurement that you have to propagate in the future. Obviously, you propagate. Uh, obviously, the error bars also increase, of course, because you have uncertainty. You have space weather. The density of the atmosphere changes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, um, if we were to have a higher precision of where the objects are, um, then of course part of this problem would go away. Now, on the one hand, part of the problem would go away, but there's also more objects going into space. So there's different things happening. Uh, and that's why, in a sense, it's also an urgent topic to tackle. Not because we're seeing lots of collisions, luckily, knock on wood, um, happening, but because if we want to actually enable also further growth of space, then we have to actually act early on uh, for two reasons. One is that the actual... Um, avoidance of collision between active satellites, but the other is, of course, making sure that the debris population doesn't get any worse. And that is in of itself a whole topic uh, which needs to be taken seriously. And then we can go back uh, to the actual domain of SSA. And I, I kind of brought in the word space safety, which then is also about taking down um, objects of de um, big debris objects, which are, again, uh, the ones that if they fragment or if they break up can, you know, cause huge damage and then prohibiting um, anti-satellite tests, making sure that people passivate their satellites, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Hey, fellow space enthusiasts. This is just a quick 30 second reminder that I just released my introductory space economy book called To Infinity in English. It provides a non-technical introduction to the space sector, covering key trends, key space businesses, humanity's potential future in space, and how you can get involved. All of this is based on my daily experience as a space venture investor and also as a university lecturer on space entrepreneurship. The book is about 250 pages long and you can get the Kindle version for about 10 bucks. You can find it on Amazon or you can download a free sample at spacebusiness.substack.com. The link is also in the episode notes. Now back to today's episode. Yeah, I suppose that's then sort of different in the sense that obviously if it's inactive um, objects, then uh, the conjunction warnings aren't the solution anymore. It has to be, I guess. I guess you, you could still help in the sense that your modeling may be able to indicate um, which objects make more sense to remove. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. Right. Uh, for sure. Yeah. That that's uh, but we know that we have to take our take down also the big objects and of course in and of itself that is a bit of a challenge because they're big and we know that the rocket equation mm -hmm. actually says that you need lots of propellant to take down the big objects and some of them are in not so good uh, orbits and et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's, yeah, uh, I, I mean, this whole, yeah. this whole conversation becomes very big, especially because if we start talking about really what's sustainable, then uh, I always point also to uh, the graveyard orbits. And for me, that's a classic of let's push the problem into the future and someone will take care of it in the future. Uh, but uh, that is a, a problem waiting to happen. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so well, I guess we can open the two minute bracket on, on what is called active debris removal, which we're talking about here. So I guess this, you believe that there should be some level of active debris removal. And, um, one question that always comes up around this, and I don't know if you have a view on that is sort of like, well, that's kind of a perfect, um, um, tragedy of the commons, um, as we call it in economics, but it's so like, who is going to pay for this and why? Yeah. And I'm sure you guys probably have had internal discussions around that. Is there any sort of view on how we could, solve that 
Um, look, uh, I was actually having thoughts about this already when I was when I was back at ESA, because, of course, indeed, uh, actually back back before we set up the space safety program, uh, debris was basically just seen really as just waste. Right. And the idea is how do you create an economy around waste? But but somehow it exists on Earth, uh, not always well. And there's plenty of cities that have problems because there's waste just lying around. Uh, and we do have a waste problem on Earth as well. But uh, still, um, I, you know, I, I think that there's all sorts of ways that this could be tackled. And, and certainly it does involve somehow money. Right. So um, either you put in put down a deposit or you have a partnership with a company that will deal with this and, and do some sort of management of objects in space for you and, and take the objects down for you or you know there's some sort of insurance i mean there's multiple ways of um you know of going about it but it's clear that it uh we can't tackle it just by uh, doing things just the way we've done uh, so far right so somehow the value chain needs to be expanded with new players and uh, a new uh, yeah equation for the money equation cost equation let, let's call it uh, like that so that the entire cycle closes uh what i'd find actually more interesting for sure is the idea of uh, keeping objects in space and at some point also doing recycling manufacturing in space but that's very futuristic but for me that's where the story needs to be heading right so while we make sure that we do fleet management we take uh, away debris i think that there needs to be also preparations for more sustainable solutions because we already know today that just re-entering objects into the atmosphere may not be the most sustainable approach ever. I mean, most basic is there's precious metals also on board and precious materials. We're really going to burn them up uh, when there's a lack of resources on Earth. Point number one. Point number two is, of course, you know, the atmosphere is going to be impacted if there's too many um um, yeah, particles in, in the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. So but that's a huge topic in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of, I guess, getting towards a, um, what we call a circular economy in space. And yeah. there's one or two startups actually working on that. Uh, yes, the challenge, yes. the challenge, and we should really invite one of them onto the podcast. The challenge there, of course, is again, sort of closing the, the economics, um, without, yes. without government subsidies, but coming back to your product. So your, your sort of, let's call it a bread and butter product. I'm a constellation operator. I sign up and, uh, let's talk a little just briefly about your business model. Is it like as simple as like, is it like a subscription per satellite yeah. or how should I yes. envision that? It's a subscription per satellite per year it's as simple as that and you have then full access to um, the the platform um, and in the platform you would see your assets that you've uploaded with your settings that you've chosen you were talking about risk uh, and, and yeah the, your risk tolerances if you have specific uh, settings for that uh, if you have a fleet or if you have individual assets or group of assets you would see that and then you would see um, you know conjunctions coming in information coming in uh, are the analysis that we've made predictions that we make uh, about uh, one of the things that we've been working on is machine learning model for predicting the evolution of the uncertainties of the objects over time so that operators can understand, am I going to get better quality data? Can I make a decision already today, like four or five days in advance prior to time of uh, closest approach? Should I you know, be looking into additional data sources? Um, and then maneuvering advice, as I was saying, based again on settings or preferences and your type of service, right? Um, so just to give you an example, if you're like a telecommunication operator, you may not want to do your maneuvers over New York at time of high intensity broadcasts. And you decide that uh, you actually set up that you want to do maneuvers over the Pacific. If you're an Earth observation satellite provider, then you have other uh, settings 
that are more interesting to you. And, you know, we provide maneuvering advice and then follow, follow through. I assume this is mostly a Leo thing, right? Leo, Mio, and, uh, well, Geo is an interesting debate. Uh, and that's what I was saying. It's very interesting depending on who you talk to. Uh, because if you talk to Geo operators, uh, there's many that believe that, uh, you know, they've been, they've been around in space for, for many, many years. And, uh, uh, you know, some of them find it even challenging to talk to startups because, you know, they're the, the, the titans of space and startups are like the juniors. Right. So, um, yeah, whether this is correct or not, I'll, I'll leave uncommented, but <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And so the, the other question I always have, and, um, is, so let's say there is a conjunction, there's a conjunction warning, right? So like a, a risk of a, uh, collision and it's, um, actually between two active satellites, right? Mm. And let's assume mm. both have propulsion. How, how yes. do you decide who's going to move out of the way? <laughs> because moving out of the say out of the way costs money, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I always say that the best maneuver is a maneuver that you don't have to do. Um, yep. So in, in a sense, I see ourselves as providing the advice of not having to maneuver. And, and that's why, you know, having good insight uh, into what the situation actually is, is the most important part uh, of the uh, of the entire business really um so obviously if you're if you're two active satellites uh, then of course there needs to be some coordination and we know that today there it's very hard even sometimes for operators to contact one another um you know having the right contact sometimes it's just info at company name.com or whatever um so to, to actually approach them is is very hard so one of the things that we're working on and and we're gonna issue is is a way for satellite active satellite uh, so operators of active satellites of course to actually coordinate between themselves and globally together find the optimal maneuver um, or have an exchange. I mean, really, we can provide advice on what the best maneuver would be. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that this is where kind of rules of the road would be helpful, right? So, yeah. um, but but then again, it becomes very hard because uh, if it's not sort of uh, imposed, then will each and every operator then follow these rules of the road um, so that they they have to be, I think, technically reasonable and be also have business intelligence uh, to them, right? So there were some reason uh, rules of the road that were uh, that were sort of brought out or uh, proposed, where, for example, the the newer, more advanced satellite should maneuver over the older, uh, less advanced satellite. Um, you know, one could argue, yes, it's true, right? Or you could you could look into it and say, okay, if the the maneuvering of uh, one of the satellite will put at risk that the satellite will not be able to have enough propellant to then do deorbiting, then maybe it should not, right? So, in a sense, it also takes um, it requires a bit of an assessment of what the actual risk is. Uh, but here, the difficulty lies in the fact that risk is probability times impact, and how do you actually assess that impact, right? So, um, obviously, we have our own thoughts on how we could uh, assess impact, but it also that becomes a very wide topic. Impact should be the impact on the operator, but, uh, and on the assets of the operator, but then it also should be the impact on the wider environment. Um, and so, it, it, you know, leave it to engineers to make it, to, to, to find the complexity and find the devil in the details. And, uh, but so one has to start small and then work towards complexity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just imagining sort of some orbital version of this, you know, you know, this funny situation we sometimes have on earth and you're like on a narrow sidewalk and a person comes head on yes. and then you move up, you move to the right, but then the person moves to the left and you yes. do this like five times and yes, then you yes. still collide in the end. 
Yes, it probably doesn't yes, happen yes. in orbit because there's a lot of space, but it sort of seems like it would be good to have some, it was certainly good to have some rules. Well, I guess another solution would be, but I'm assuming we're like even further away from that, but you tell me if there was some sort of automate, automated, mm. because right now it seems like all of this goes back to Earth basically, right? And, and um, then there's, it seems relatively manual too, but, but you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, Whereas no, like, no, you're perfectly right. And, okay. and that's actually part of uh, the vision that we have, or, you know, the, I personally believe in autonomous spacecraft a lot more for a number of reasons, uh, right? Because as a human shouldn't always need to be in the loop and sometimes a human can't be in the loop. So it'd certainly be good if there's some autonomy uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and this sort of tar targets both civil or commercial applications as well as certainly defense applications. Um, and, but yeah, right. So if, if we had some level of minimum communication between spacecraft, um, you know, that know where the others are and somehow can coordinate between themselves that it makes sense already if you have big constellations if you're a constellation operator it totally makes sense for you to do so for your own constellation um so why not for for everything else obviously there's still going to be those people that want to put satellites in orbit that nobody knows where they are it's a bit like uh, ais and ships right they have the beacon beep, beep 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 you can turn it off and then you kind of disappear right but um there is a you know there's there's a technical baseline for making that happen yeah, but I assume that's that's of course um, you know there's there's going to be military assets of course, but there um, I mean we, we probably have the same thing in aviation. There's going to be occasionally mm. you know military jets flying around, yes. which you, yes. you don't know that they're until like the last minute and they tell you to just get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, this brings actually up uh, another important point. There's there's actually uh, you know pe many people believe that uh, the way to tackle space traffic management is uh, like air traffic management. You should actually have single points that coordinate the space traffic um or uh yeah and and are really controllers if you will um so it's it's the space traffic control uh even more uh, i'm not sure i agree with that because uh, i i believe physics different there's uh people that are also suggesting that we should have a maximum number of satellites in orbit um so i i i'm careful there because regulation it takes ages to come up with regulation and if you come up with a regulation that's too stringent then you kind of have to go back and takes you another 20 years to change it back. And so I'm, I, I believe more in incentives uh, rather than regulation. Yeah, I think I'm very much with you right now because I mean, that seemed to be, and I must admit, I don't actually know enough about the history of um, air traffic management. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. it seems to work now, but it probably took many decades to develop. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. And like you said, it just seems different, right? Because air traffic management, I mean, even a jet aircraft, even if you're over a small country, you're going to be there probably for a few minutes where, where you're in a low Earth orbit, you're like mm -hmm. 90 minutes around the entire Earth. I mean, how are you going to coordinate this? And I guess also the geopolitical situation today is such that any sort of agreement may be quite difficult and it seems i think what you're getting at is um we leave it to game theory and nobody wants nobody wants to see their spacecraft destroyed so let's figure this out yeah so i mean people people generally ask uh, also in panels uh you know if we feel that there is a need for regulation and, and obviously the answer is yes, because, uh, you know, regulation is good. It, it shouldn't be over-regulating. Regulation is ne is not good, but regulation is good, of course. And now I always add the statement that I believe that technological advances are generally faster than regulation. Um, so that's why, again, I repeat the fact that I think that also industry needs to take leadership, both from a point of view of, uh, you know, companies that want to make sure that they 
can have a sustained business uh, in space and, and, you know, that their business can continue in the next 10, 20 years uh, because the situation hasn't deteriorated. Uh, but also other companies like Neurospace trying to push for technical solutions that can actually facilitate this and enable this uh, from, from happening. And, you know, this provides, I think, a, a technical basis and technically informed can technically inform regulations that are then put in place, right, by uh, you know, um, showing how rules of the uh, rules of the road uh, can actually be done because they've already been done because industry's taken uh, you know a positive leadership role in in this. So uh, maybe I'm mm -hmm. too positive and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm naive in this, but that that that's the way I see it. <laughs> yep, yeah, me too. And so speaking of incentives, um, whatever, like 10, 20 minutes ago, we briefly mentioned insurance companies mm -hmm. as another stakeholder. And of course, their incentive is or incentive probably should be that they don't want to pay out like hundreds of millions of dollars because satellites randomly got destroyed. But um, we talked about the traction you have of constellation operators, um, any sort of you know traction with insurance companies. So we we speak to insurance companies and we get different messages actually from insurance companies. There's insurance companies that say, OK, uh, you know, we, if the situation doesn't improve, when things don't get better regulated and nothing's done, then in sort of 10 years, then space business is not going to be profitable anymore and we're actually going to leave the space business. Um, I think one of the things that also needs to be said is that many insurance companies, space is like a super tiny part of a much wider business that they have, right? So um, you're, you're also talking to people that are very interested in insurance companies, but their voice in the bigger company is is relatively small in, in a sense, because the business is just much tinier. And if you talk to this uh, range of insurance companies, you'll see those that tell you, look, uh, there's hardly any impact because uh, the actual, the, the collision impact on the premium that we're calculating is hardly there. So uh, actually, if, you know, if there's a satellite operator that has a collision avoidance uh, solution in place, then, um, you know, it, it will hardly get felt. But we did have a conversation with uh, um, an interested customer recently, and they actually told us um, that uh, insurance company told them that they would get a better premium and if, if they had an STM solution on board. Um, so something's obviously moving, at least with some um, insurance companies. And as I said, we, we do speak to them and uh, they... Uh, they, they, it's, it's a, it's, it's a flirting at a distance uh, relationship at this stage. <laughs> yeah. And so let me ask you another sort of related question, I guess, to incentives is, so right now, commercial customers can sign up for your service. They pay. It's a commercial model. Um, because I mean, this seems like something where obviously the more people do it, the better it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the, yep. for, for the, for the, in terms of optimizing the overall outcome, right. For yep. the entire ecosystem. So do you think that ultimately this may this should be like some sort of public service. And then of course, it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you as a company can't exist, right? Because we have some countries yeah. like, for me, I think UK and Canada, where air traffic management is actually outsourced to private companies. This is a very interesting debate that's actually ongoing. Um, I don't know how much um, you or listeners know about USST um, and obviously equivalent in, in the US. Uh, but of course, there's a conversation uh, ongoing both in the US and uh, in, in Europe and maybe in other countries as well as to what would be a public provided um, service, which is free of charge, available to anyone. And what would uh, a commercial service look like that people then have to pay for? Um, and there's a, sort of a, a common understanding that um, there can be like a, let's call it a baseline service 
which is the most, not the most basic, because basic is not such a, it's not considered a nice word, but uh, it's called a fundamental or baseline service indeed that comes from the public sector and that there's added value products which are built on top of that. Uh, one of the common examples is, for example, uh, indeed, um, conjunction data messages. So conjunction data messages are generated where when you have a catalog of objects and then you basically compare all the objects that are all versus all, and then you see is there actually a conjunction that's going to come up, right? And then a con if there is, then a, a conjunction data message is generated. Um, and that's kind of the, the most fundamental service that you can provide to, to someone. And then you can add layers on top of that. Um, so I think that um, the understanding that uh, protecting space and space is a common good and therefore the public sector should do something or, or has a right to do so and it's good that they feel a responsibility to do so, I think we shouldn't question that and I think that's good. Um, also, we all know that in space, the public sector is also very important with investments and enabling and I see actually their role in providing this fundamental service as something that can actually enable uh, companies to grow. Um, we as Neurospace, uh, we've actually pushed um, for uh, the con the ingestion of conjunction data messages, not from just from space, space track, but also from USST. And this is something, it's a process that now we're going through and it's the first the first time that this is happening, if you will, which is fantastic because uh, it means now that also European space companies can rely on USST for developing these added value products. So my answer to you is yes, but and the but uh, also comes that uh, there's a limited amount of funding. And if we want to do serious business in space, then if we just limit ourselves to what the public sector can do, then we can sort of not all go home, but we'll, we will remain limited. And I think the vision of what space can do for economies and what it can be as itself of an economy is seriously limited. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So roughly how many satellites, if you can talk about how many satellites are you having as customers? Uh, so we have 10 customers uh, that are looking or uh, using our platform and these customers are will be putting in orbit uh, about 400 satellites in the coming years. They don't have these 400 satellites now, but they're going to put about yeah. 400 satellites into orbit in the coming years. Gotcha. And of course, your, your model, um, by definition, is a very scalable one. But uh, what I want to get at is sort of like if you look five or 10 years, whatever the right time frame out, sort of like what's... And kind of taking a lot of these things we talked about now, the future of mm. SSA and space traffic management. What what do you guys want the company to be in like a medium term time frame? What's the what's the underlying vision? Uh, well, certainly when I talk to investors, I always tell them that this the space traffic management, the product that we're developing today, is the beginning of the neurospace uh, story, really. And uh, as we move forward, you know, being part of making autonomous spacecraft happen is certainly one of the things that we uh, we want to be doing, right? So. Um, you know, putting intelligence to orbit, um, making operations more autonomous. And there's obviously possible facets to this, but that's sort of where we want to be going. Gotcha. And as you mentioned at the beginning, you guys have raised actually quite a, you know, significant, amount of, I mean, given the, the age of the company, quite a significant amount of money um, between yes. private and, and public sources. You are a downstream company. So if you were upstream, right? Some of these guys who want to build like um, SSA sensors in orbit. I mean, then of course we understand this is going to be very expensive at times, but mm -hmm. you guys have raised a lot of money. Is Where's, I wish you can talk about it. Where's most of it going through? Is it sort of like commercial development? Is it product development? Uh, you mentioned you guys may do some something on the hardware side after all. Yeah, yeah. So we are, um, as I mentioned, we are investing in a little bit of infrastructure because as the sort of data value chain isn't fully developed, it's actually good to have 
have. And I think in any case, it's not bad to have your own sort of independent data sources and you could play around with it and experiment with new models, also of analyses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so most of it indeed is going into product development and investigating uh, sort of new methods. And as I said, we have these three pillars, which are data fusion, AI and machine learning and, and, and automation. And so most of our funding goes towards people and, and working towards product development for sure. Uh, but data and this infrastructure is obviously the second bigger portion of what we're uh, uh, investing in. Yes. Are you guys hiring right now? Yeah, we're hiring. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's we grew from uh, we were four or five in November of last year, and we're twenty six now. So we don't have these huge jumps, and then sort of we're uh, sustainably growing slowly but steadily, uh, unstoppable. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, as we are, as we're sort of winding down towards the end here, a um, couple of questions I wanted to ask you. So, besides Neurospace, so first of all, well, actually, Neurospace is based in in Portugal. I mean, I, I would argue you're one of the most prominent, maybe the most prominent space company in Portugal right now. Yes. And and in a previous, well, in a recent previous life, you were also, uh, for, I think, for a short time, the head of the of Portugal Space, the Portuguese Space Agency. Just want to yes. talk a few minutes about how you see the Portuguese space ecosystem. Um. So obviously, I, I have different views of the uh, Portuguese uh, space, uh, space ecosystem. Uh, I, I can share maybe the anecdote, of course, that being the president, uh, first president of the Portuguese National Space Agency, one of the things that I was very adamant about was indeed trying to push for a new space and new space meaning uh, bringing in private investments uh, into space and doing so also in Portugal. Um, so for me, going out and then leading your space was uh, also you know, you don't just preach, you actually do it, right? So, and and showing that it's possible. Um, now, one of the things I've always found uh, extremely fascinating about the Portuguese uh, space ecosystem is that there's many companies that aren't just uh, in space. There are companies that are in space and in, in, in aerospace or in sort of different fields, right? And I found that always a strength because, you know, one of the things I believe is that space needs to stop being a bubble. So companies that understand uh, and other markets and experience space market, I think, can actually bring positive experiences and positive influence to also the space market. So I've seen this Portuguese space ecosystem, a tiny, compact, but you know, with advantages, which we don't necessarily see in other countries where companies are very specialized around space because they're just there's huge amount of public sector funding. Yeah. Um, so they, they're, you know, they can be more. Yeah, they can just survive longer and better on public sector funding. So that's um, um, yeah. That's, I think, yeah, the, yeah. the highlight and then the one big takeaway that, I, that I've that i always seen with in Portugal. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And so I forgot to ask you, how did you... How did you originally get involved with Neurospace? What what attracted you? How how did that happen? It's actually a funny story, uh, which I'm more than happy to share. Um, so I, I I went to Portugal Space because at the time Portugal was uh, setting wanted to set up the agency, and they were looking for someone with a sort of European background. Um, so I got um, I got asked by the government to go and then uh, talking to the director general at the time, I was then seconded. I, I sort of was on hold from ESA and went off to Portugal to help them do this. For me, it was a wonderful honor. And when I was there, one of the things that I told the government was, um, you know, space, Portugal doesn't have that much public sector funding. We just spoke about it, right? And, and Portugal can be a leader, right? One doesn't have to restrict oneself to just being a component 
component provider or doing technology development. But in order to lead, of course, you have to identify new markets and then invest in those. And then you can grow the champions of tomorrow, the leaders of tomorrow. And and I always say, you know, it's thought that uh, it's thoughts that move the world before it's money that is moving the world. And so I convinced the government to invest in space safety at the time because I really believe that this was an upcoming market. And I really believe that we would see commercialization in space safety uh, happen a lot faster than, you know, we'd seen in other sectors like Earth observation, telecommunications, where of course it's happened, but, you know, at a different speed. And I think that's that's happening. So one day, uh, a guy called Nuno Sebastian walks into my office. I didn't know uh, Nuno at all. He's, uh, you know, in the tech world in Portugal, he's quite known. And he tells me, okay, uh, hello, I'm Nuno. I'm like, okay, good. Nice to meet you, Nuno. <laughs> and he started asking me whether, you know, I believed that space debris was uh, was a thing. Nuno had had worked for ESA previously, and then he had left ESA, went off and created a company called Fitzai, which does AI and machine learning uh, for fraud detection for financial entities, especially banks. And Fitzai is a unicorn. One must know that it's unicorn, but I didn't know any of that. So he had been contacted from some former colleagues that said, well, why don't you give back to space? You know, why don't you, you know, create a company in space? So he was doing his due diligence and trying to understand um, whether uh, space debris was a market that he could invest in. Um, so so after our conversation, uh, he was, I think, positively uh, uh, convinced that uh, this was the case. He probably did some more due, digilent, due diligence. And then he created uh, Neurospace. He actually found, uh, founded uh, the company. And um, after I left Portugal uh, and uh, after I then decided that I was also going to leave ESA, he contacted me and he asked me if I wanted to join and lead the, the team. And, you know, it was space debris, space safety, uh, important topic. And, you know, I knew that having Nuno as an investor and someone I could turn to for advice within the company uh, for, you know, to, to bring forward the company was certainly, you know, with his background of having built and set up a company was certainly going to give Neurospace uh, starting DNA, which many other startups didn't have. Um, so that's that's how it happened. Yes, that's a good story. And, 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 and very serendipitous, right? Because of course, also the feeds AI expertise and artificial intelligence is is uh, very beneficial to what you're doing at Neurospace. Yes. So if, and, and obviously it was um, on a personal level, like you pointed out, you already were interested in space safety. May I ask mm -hmm. you if, if you weren't at Neurospace, but obviously you have a good overview of the space ecosystem in general, is there any other sort of area of new space, of commercial space business you find very interesting and attractive right now? Well, my background is uh, propulsion. I'm going to see. Yeah, um, my background is space propulsion. So I find extremely fascinating uh, to see what's going to happen in the field of space transportation and, uh, you know, specifically in Europe. So, uh, yeah, I, I find that just interesting because we are where access to space remains one of the key enablers. Right. And there's there's been a lot of change, lots of uh, evolution, revolution. And I think we're going to see more. So very excited. Yeah, interesting. About that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting topic. And as even the ESA director general recently very openly pointed out in Europe right now, we have to do some work so we can ensure our space access. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you. Um, Sorry, uh, I was just going to say, I think we, uh, you know, we have quite a number of uh, micro launcher companies that want to prove their worth. And, uh, you know, if we're lucky, we're going to have quite a few that's, uh, that are going to launch successfully. And then, you know, we just have to take our pick on which ones we're going to buy services from. I know it's not that easy, but, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a final question, which is always the same, which is about science fiction. What's your, I mean, assuming you like science fiction. Um, I do. What, what, are, what are some of your favorites? It could be anything, books, movies, TV shows. Yeah. Um, 
So I've avidly read um, Heinlein, Heinlein uh, Farmer in the Sky uh, and, mm-hmm. and uh, his books. But I have to say, I also got hooked. I mean, total Trekkie fan, but I also got hooked on a series called Firefly, which uh, sure. was kind of a, a total mix between like a Western style and uh, yeah, science fiction. Really, really like that. Yeah, yeah five, five years ago. That's almost, I think, 20 years ago now, but it still has uh, yeah. this cult. Cult status. It does. That, it, it does. And I was, I was devastated. I discovered it late. I was devastated when I found out that they only had that one go at it. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be all watching what's happening in the world of um, space traffic management, SSASD, whatever you want to call it. It's an important yeah. topic and uh, people, it's, it's good people like Neospace are working on it. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.